Luke chapter number 14, verse 12 through 24. Already we've read the text. We dealt with verses 1 through 11 and 12 the last time we were together in Luke, where Jesus is talking about living counter to the culture around us. A dedicated disciple is going to live a life that is different than the culture that is around them. We reverse the world's values. We carry our cross and we follow Jesus. We surrender our rights. We surrender our position. We surrender our possessions. The only hope, the only confidence that we live our life in is then that which is future. Heavenly investments, heavenly treasures. We live in hope of a future resurrection. So the kingdom of God, Jesus is teaching here, belongs to dedicated disciples, not to those who would live a form of this godliness while denying the power that is thereof. Now, we saw as Jesus taught that his followers are going to be counter to the culture around them. First, he dealt with this idea of the best seats. And he said, when you come to a a gathering, don't run to the front and sit in the best seats because you might be asked to downgrade so that somebody else can sit in the best seats. Just just take the least. No presumption there, because it'd be, it'd be better to be asked to move up than to be asked to move down. Now he moves into a different set of teaching in verses 12 through 24, and it's, it's about a coveted invitation. This party that you want to get invited to, you presume that you're going to get invited to, and it would mean something in, in, in earthly standards should you get invited to. And Jesus kind of deals with a different form of thinking in regards to that. We've read it already. So back in verses 1 through 11, he addressed the trap of legalism, which the Pharisees had found themselves in, and then the temptation of ambition, which was their motivation, always trying to be um, a little bit more in human terms. Today we're going to pick up in verses 12 and on, as Jesus questions the sincerity of the hospitality of those who've invited them to this dinner. Now, if you remember from verses 1 through 11, they hosted a dinner for the reason of trapping Jesus. They invited a sick person there on the Sabbath to see if he would actually heal on the Sabbath. Now, he's already addressed where to sit, where not to sit. Now he's going to talk to them about who to invite and who not to invite to this type of a gathering. In verse number four, he pointed this out already because after he heals the sick man, he lets him go. Notice verse four. And they held their peace and took him and healed him and he let them let him go. So they're still having the dinner. They're still gathered for this dinner. But Jesus heals this man and he says, you can go now. Basically, this is symbolizing. I realize that the only reason you've invited this guy here is to try to trap me. You have invited him here for the right reasons. From that, he begins to speak directly to what he's going to teach. Notice verse 12. Then said he also to him that bade him, when thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends or thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again and recompense be made thee. Now I want us to be careful that we don't misunderstand by reading into what Jesus is saying here, a, 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 wrong, a wrong thing. This is not his prohibition to invite friends or family over for dinner. In fact, if you don't like some of your family, this is not your excuse. 
can't use this proof text and say, this is why I haven't been inviting you to dinner. This is why we're not having Thanksgiving with you anymore. It's okay if that's what you want to do, but don't try to use this verse for that. Certainly, there are relationships with friends and with family, and I'll just say with church family, who are our friends, that we do need to cultivate and that we do need to build up. And sharing meals together is a great way to do it. Uh, From Jesus' teaching here, what we want to take away from that is, while it's good that we do such things, we shouldn't consider that ministry. That's at best edification. But you inviting someone you like to come have a meal with you, that's not ministry. What would be ministry is for you to invite someone you don't like to come have a meal with you. What would be ministry is for you to invite someone who can't feed themselves to come and have a meal with you. There is a place in the Christian community for reciprocal hospitality. This idea that I'm going to come eat dinner with you and you're going to come eat dinner with me and we're going to hang out, we're going to get to know each other, we're going to love on one another, we're going to build each other up in the faith. This is a very biblical, it was a very Jewish, now a very Christian thing for us to be doing. I'll give you some proof text for that. Job 1.13 says, There was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. You know the story of Job, and it kind of starts like this. These, these children of Job were having this feast. This is not seen as in the negative. It's, it's not at all. In fact, it seems that Job and his family were doing everything they should be to be righteous before God. Acts chapter number 2, verse 44 and 45. And all they that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had Need. So here we see again in the early church, these, this reciprocal hospitality that they had among themselves. But as far as we're concerned in our day, often that's as far as the hospitality goes. We, 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 we see those that we like and we, we feed those that we like and we spend time with those that we like. and We never let it go any further than this. So Jesus puts all his emphasis here on inviting people who are in no position to invite us back. Now, let's make sure we're aware of a term. It's a a secular term, but we want to have it defined appropriately in the church here. What do we call doing for others when there's zero chance that they can do anything in return for us? The term for that is generosity. We need to be generous people, but we need to understand what generosity means. If I'm going to let Henry borrow this tie here, Henry wears ties and I wear ties. Now, Henry's more of a bow tie guy, I'm more of a not bow tie guy. But I like that bow tie that he's wearing today, so I decide I want to wear Henry's bow tie. So I give him my tie in hopes that he would give me his tie so that I could wear it sometime. Is that generosity? Awfully generous of me, right, to, to let him have this tie. No, it's not at all. I'm, I'm expecting something in return. Now, what's the secular term for that? When you're doing something, expecting something in return. Quid pro quo. Can you give us uh, non-Latin words? What are some non-Latin words for that? Doing something, expecting something in return? <laughs> Scummy. <laughs> There's a non-Latin term for it. But often this is how we operate. So Jesus says in verse 12, when you make a dinner, 
Don't call your friends. Don't call your brothers. Don't call your kinsmen, your rich neighbors. Verse 13, he says, when you do make a feast, call the poor, call the maimed, call the lame, call the blind. Do not invite your friends only, but also invite people who are down and out. The only selfless way to serve is to invite a guest who has nothing to offer except his need. Now, Jesus is teaching this through a parable about a feast. And so I'm going to teach it to you in regards to feasting. I want you to understand you need to apply this in all different ways in life. It could be through feasts. It could be through yard work. It could be through stocking pantries. There's a, there's a bazillion different ways. Y'all know that term, bazillion? It's where we've gotten with inflation and currency. <laughs> We're going to make up some new words so we can afford it. There's lots of different ways that you can be generous as a Christian. There's lots of different ways that as a disciple of Christ, you can be selfless. So don't just hear it in this regard. Some of you, food hospitality makes you cringe. To some of you, cooking a meal for other people would stress you out. Can I get a witness? All right, there's some of you. You're, you're, I saw you already. You're sitting back there and you're looking like, oh man, I wish I had skipped church today. Well, that, that doesn't mean that you've got to learn how to cook meals and be positive with people in regards to that. What it means is, is there's some other way for you to be generous and for you to be helping people who are poor, who are disabled. And so we, we learn from this passage here how we're to be counter to the culture around us. Now, now how is this counter to the culture? Well, the culture is not generous. The culture lives off the quid pro quo mantra. Disciples of Christ are not to be this way. It's just, I see a way that I could be generous to you and I'm going to be generous to you. You have an opportunity to be generous to me. Shanae's not mad in leaving church. I don't think, right? Okay. She, <laughs> I made an appointment for something to get delivered to our house today. Somebody's got to be there. And so it's either me or her. And we were thinking church would be over by now if we'd have met at 1030. So this is what's happening. Just so everybody's aware, we're, we're still good in our marriage. Siri's talking in the middle of that. She's going to tell on me. She needs a gun handler. I said, don't go by yourself. And if that's not what this is, I'm in big trouble later. Now I'm, I'm questioning myself. Will somebody be generous to me and give me a place to go after church? The only selfless way to serve is to invite someone who, who has nothing else to give you in return. This is definitive generosity. Being generous when there is zero chance, it will be reciprocated. This is biblical generosity. This is Jesus saying here, expand your guest list. Develop meaningful relationships with people outside of your existing community. Welcome some awkward people into your life. Welcome some difficult people into your life. J.C. Ryle said it this way. He said, the Lord Jesus would have us care for our poor brethren and to help them according to our power. He would have us know that it is our solemn duty never to neglect the poor, 
but to aid them and relieve them in their time of need. William MacDonald says this, we should love those who are unlovely and who cannot repay us. So I wonder this morning, as we consider these verses, are we like the Pharisees in the text? Guilty of false hospitality. The host here had invited his guests for two reasons. He wanted to pay them back because they had invited him to their past feasts, or he wanted to put them under his debt so that they would invite him to their future feasts. There's a version of this that goes on in churches. When a preacher wants to be invited to go preach at some other church, he will invite that preacher to come preach at his church, and then they kind of reciprocate those invitations, and then they both feel good because they're getting invited to go preach at these other churches. I don't know that we practice that way. I just Usually if I've heard a guy preach a good sermon, I'll say, you should come preach that to our church, and we'll invite him to our fall revival and Outside of that and missionaries coming by, we don't do a whole lot of guest preachers coming in. And then I used to get invited to go preach a lot and don't anymore. So I blame you guys for that. So Chuck Swindoll said the, the more he smelled like sheep, the less attractive he became to everyone else in the world. So this, these are the, the woes of the pastor, right? This isn't how we should operate. We should just be generous. We should be kind. We should be loving We shouldn't have our reasons for doing the things that we should. That's manipulative. It's awfully sinful. It's very selfish. The motivation should be love. The motivation should be grace. Instead, it's pride and selfishness. I think that social life has very much, very much infiltrated the church. So let's strive to be selfless and more like Jesus is describing And I think we need to answer the why there. Is it to be righteous? You see, that can become another crutch in our Christianity. All right, the preacher said I should do this. He showed me in the Bible where it says I should do this. So I'm going to do this. Well, what's my motivation? Well, in obedience, it's because the Bible says it, right? And then in the church family, it's because the person we've entrusted to teach us what the Bible says, says that we should. Well, there's more to it than that. It will testify to our righteousness or our righteous standing before God. When we obey the Bible, it will testify to that. But how about just doing it because God is changing us to be loving and kind people? And then verse 14 does give us the eternal reward to look at. He says, and thou shalt be blessed. So verse 12 and 13 tells you what not to do, what to do. In regards to your generosity and your hospitality, and verse 14 gives you the reason for this, is because you'll be blessed because of it. For they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. So here's this idea that later in life, in the resurrection, we're storing up treasures in heaven, this kind of idea. From there then, in verse 14 through 24, Jesus teaches again with a parable about a great banquet. He says first, there's this answer from uh, another one in the crowd. Notice verse 15. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, you got to understand that from verse 1 down through verse 15 here, Jesus has insulted nearly everyone at this dinner table. 
Maybe he has already insulted everyone at this dinner table. It seems the man in verse 15 is trying to break the ice of social awkwardness in this situation. Maybe you have found yourself in such a setting at times where somebody says something they shouldn't have said or misunderstood or were presumptuous or just stuck their foot in their mouth in a a major kind of a way. Well, the man here in verse number 15, he says a statement about the resurrection that I think he believes everyone would agree with what I'm about to say here. And so he says, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, let's, let's just look through that. Is this a truthful statement? Absolutely. Are you blessed if you eat bread in the kingdom of God? Yeah, this, what a nice thing to say, right? It's, it's kind, it's, it's thoughtful, it changes the subject. But there's a lot of presumption that goes into this statement, which leads Jesus to, to lead to some more teaching there. This man, when he says, blessed is everyone who would eat bread in the kingdom, he's assuming that he would be in the kingdom. All right, now let's think about who this guy is. He could be the man who threw the feast. All right, what was their reason for throwing this feast? They were trying to trap Jesus into breaking the law and doing work on the Sabbath by healing a man who had a disease. So here's a guy with awfully, awfully horrible motivations. Maybe he wasn't the guy who held the feast. Maybe he just showed up. Okay, well, here's a guy who said, oh, it's about time he invited me. I've cooked three barbecues since the last time I've been to his house and he cooked something. He better have steak tonight, whatever his motivation is. Nevertheless, Jesus has pointed out here that it's poor in any instance that you can look at it here. So this guy's assuming, well, you're all right. You're going to be there in the kingdom, so you're going to say a statement like, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom. There's another presumption that he has here that is also fallible. He's assuming that all of these at this dinner party would be there. It's like if we were having a party here. And I said, oh, it's great to be eating with a whole bunch of people on their way to heaven. Mostly true. It is great to eat with people on their way to heaven. And it's mostly true in this setting that we would assume most of the people in here who showed up to hear preaching on a Sunday afternoon are on their way to heaven or intend to be. But is it actually true that everybody in this place is on their way to heaven? Probably not. So this guy makes the assumption about himself. He makes the assumption about everyone else at this dinner party. But probably the worst assuming thought that he had in making this statement was that Jesus was going to agree with him on it. Now that one, I I can kind of get behind him on the other two. But given the way this dinner has gone so far, and that Jesus has basically corrected everything anybody else has said or done to this point, God had just been quiet. I'm not going to say anything. You remember as a child when maybe Dad came home in a bad mood or somebody had done or said something they shouldn't to mom and you kind of set them off and you knew it's just best to be quiet from that point on. It's not going to go well for you if you say anything else. You know, like, what is this we're eating? It smells funny, etc. Well, here this guy says this and he, 
he, he presumes a lot, but I think the thing that he presumes most is, I'll kind of win Jesus over to this crowd. But Jesus doesn't agree with them at all. And so he teaches through this parable of the great banquet. We'll see that in verses 16 on. But as we get into it, I want you to be sure that the parable from Jesus' day is being heard in your ears for our day in a way that we can use it. I wanted you to think through these questions with me. How many would you say in the world that we live in like the idea of heaven? Like what percentage of people? Like a few, kind of 50-50, or like most people? What do you think? Somebody, anybody? I think most people. Even somebody who would say, I don't believe in God, or I don't believe in hell, or I don't believe in religion, or whatever it is they believe or don't believe in. I think if you surveyed the world, most people would say, well, I like the idea of like, some blissful place in the afterlife. Most people like the idea of heaven. How many assume they will go to heaven? I think most people assume that I'm gonna, things are going to turn out all right for me in the afterlife. In fact, typical human logic is this. As long as my good outweighs my bad while I'm living, then it'll be all right for me when I'm dead. Right? Am I wrong on that? I mean, one of the most popular religious things in all of the world is this Hinduistic notion of karma. And the idea is in the afterlife, whether you've been good or bad, you're going to kind of, it's going to kind of pay you back at least in the afterlife and maybe some in this life. The, the, the non-religious way to speak of it is what goes around comes around. The biblical way to speak of it is you reap what you sow. So I would say most people think heaven's probably a good idea. I think most people would say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I think, I, I think I'm going to go to heaven. I'm working real hard. I'm trying my best. Then we must consider how many assume that most are good and will go to heaven. And even then, I think probably it's, for the most part, all of us. Now, the scripture is clear when it gives us the gospel on how to go to heaven. If you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, he's Lord, you're slave, you're going to go to heaven. Now, there's a lot of verses and a lot of scriptures that go along with that. Repent and be baptized and you will be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then there's a lot of doctrine that goes behind that. Romans 8. Whoever God foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he's sanctifying and he will glorify them. We understand all of that. But just in the moment, as we think about, you know, maybe we're sitting at a feast. And someone at this feast has set it up for the wrong notion. They set it up to trap Jesus. He seems to be claiming to be the Messiah. We're not exactly sure yet if that's what he's after, but it seems to be what this guy's doing. We have a hard time with him being the Messiah because we like the idea as religion of always looking for the Messiah, not being here with the Messiah. So we got to figure out a way that this guy is not the Messiah. Well, the Messiah would never, surely he'd never heal on Sabbath because he's Lord of the Sabbath. Their motives are off. The reasons for their generosity are off. They still presume, though, we're, we're pretty good people. 
We're probably, we, we assume we're going to heaven. I mean, if you're a Jew in that day, what would your logic be? Simply, I'm a son or daughter of Abraham. I'm not, I'm not a Gentile. I'm going to heaven. And then even then, they had their own versions of exclusion, which would be, some would be un, considered unclean. Oh, you're a leper. Well, you're unclean until you can get clean. Well, you're not going to heaven. What about in our world? Most like the idea of heaven. Most assume they will go to heaven. Most assume that others are going to heaven. Well, we need to take that kind of thinking and apply it up to what Jesus is teaching here. He goes on in this parable to teach that the only people who ever sit down at God's table are those who respond to his invitation by faith. So let's begin with the invitation in verse 16 and 17. Then said he unto him, a certain man made a great supper and bade many and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, come for all things are now ready. Now there's a two part invitation here. We sort of operate this way in our days for different reasons, but they sent out a save the date, which asked for an RSVP. And then once the party was actually going to happen. Everybody who had RSVP to the save the date was told, okay, it's, it's ready to happen. Now you need to think of it in, in logistical terms. Why do they do it this way? Well, hey, we're going to send out a, a notion that we're having a party. Let us know if you think you're going to come because we're going to have to kill a lot of animals and prepare them and cook the food. This thing had to be timed out right. There was no electricity. There was no way to store the meat. So it just kind of had to happen as it happened. And we're thinking we're going to eat on Saturday around five, but it might be Sunday around three, depending on how the cooking goes and, and all of these kind of things. You can imagine if you're trying to cook a large amount of meat for a group of people and you didn't have any modern technologies and just a change in the weather could make a huge difference in this. So the idea was we're going to call the feast. You let us know if you're planning to come. We'll cook for you. When the food's ready, we'll send servants around to let you know, all right, it's time to come now. And within a general window of time, then you should arrive. This is the understanding in their culture, given the, the parable that Jesus is teaching them about here. Well, it's a very telling parable that Jesus is giving here. This dinner party that he's actually attending at the moment is hosted by some who question him as Messiah. In the parable that Jesus gives them now from verse 16 and on, God would be the one hosting the great banquet. He doesn't call him that. But we understand parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Well, what's the heavenly meaning to this story? Well, obviously, God is going to host a great banquet, meaning the, the kingdom. Well, who would get the initial kingdom invitation? Well, it would be the initial kingdom invitation would be the old covenant promise. Well, who received that invitation? It would be the Jews. We would call them now the nation of Israel. God's chosen people. He made covenants with them. One man to God down the line. But he made it with that man like Abraham and then all of his descendants. So in the parable, God is the host. The invitation would go to the nation of Israel under the old covenant promise. And they would be awaiting the call to dinner. They would be awaiting the time where God would send word that things are now ready. And what would that be, given everything we learned in the Old Covenant, all throughout Genesis through Malachi, 
The thing that would let you know things are now ready is what? But thou, Bethlehem, though you're little, out of you shall come one who is great. All the prophets talked about this coming of the one, this coming of the Messiah. So the birth of Christ would be this call to the table, so to speak. It would be this saying, God has made this invitation. He has promised this great feast. And the call to dinner, the, 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 the notification that things are now ready will be when the Messiah comes. Well, here he is. Jesus has been born. He is right there before them. God's kingdom has come. Jesus is announcing this through the parable, but he's also pointing out to them through this parable the fallacies of their thinking. Now, in this parable and in reality, this type of invitation is a coveted invitation to be a part of God's kingdom. It's what every little Jew grew up thinking, this is what I want in life. In fact, it got so bad over time that they were taught, this is what you get in life. It's your right. You deserve this. Oh, well, we're enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, but don't you worry about it because one day it's going to pay off because you deserve this. And you can follow the history of Israel all along the ways and and kind of give that. I don't mean to sound anti-Jew here, but I want you to understand that in this moment in the Gospels, what is happening with the nation of Israel is they are turning away God's invitation. They are rejecting His kingdom. They had gotten so entitled in their living and their nationalistic culture that when the very God of heaven sent them what He had promised them, what do we know about God's covenants? He always, always keeps His promises. It wasn't what they expected, so it wasn't what they wanted. They had become so wrapped up in their nationalistic, political, cultural society that they forgot the bare bones of their religion, meaning their relationships with God. So when Messiah came and He wasn't going to kick out the Romans, or had He come when they were in Egypt, He wasn't going to get them out of Egypt. They said, well, then this must not be the Messiah. Did they have any trouble following Moses as long as Moses' word to them was, we're going to leave slavery? Not at all. When did they have trouble following Moses? When it was 40 years in a wilderness. And they said to Moses, oh, were there not enough graves in Egypt? You had to bring us out here to die? Now, I drive that point home to us because we're Americans. I heard a, a European preacher say to a, to a group of Americans recently, he was preaching, and he said, we've always thought in Europe that you Americans were a little too attached to your freedom and just a little bit too entitled with, with the democracy that you have. Now, we would say from their point of view, well, of course they think that. We, they would envy us because we are free. I mean, look at us. We're, we're gathered for worship on a Sunday morning wherever we want, whenever we want, however we want. You drove your cars here. You... You, you did it however you'd like to do it. Well, within a certain you know, speed limit and all that. I still think that's an invasion of my freedoms. That's just how American I am. But you, you know, you, you, you toted your guns here. 
You locked up your valuables at home. How dare somebody come near your property because it's yours. You have a right to it. But that preacher said, I knew that you Americans had taken it too far when you decided that you were also entitled to pick your own genders. And this is where we are. This is where we live. We've gotten so crazy with our entitlements that guess what has happened in the church? Oh, well, we're entitled to go to heaven. Why? Well, I go to church. I do what the Bible says. Now, let's, let's just run that rabbit trail for just a minute. I forgot to tell you this to start with. This sermon's kind of like Smokey and the Bandit. We started with a long way to go and a short time to get there. So if you, if you got somewhere to be, you might just have to, I got a long way to go this morning, but, but, I, but I want to take this rabbit trail for just a moment here. I go to church. I've been baptized. I've got my Bible. I read my Bible. Whatever it is that you've established as your form of godliness. And, and then let's just take that up against the rich young ruler. He come, this guy comes to Jesus says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus tell him? What's that? Well, yeah, he didn't tell him that at first. But you're right. That's what he gets to. What's he tell him first? Keep the law. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. And he says to Jesus, hooray. You know, he's, he's excited. Oh, I've done this from my youth. Now, let's be honest. We know humans and you know you. Had this guy really kept the law from his youth? How many of you think, yes, this guy, he's telling the truth. He's kept the law from his youth. Nobody thinks that. Let me make sure you're awake. How many of you believe this guy was lying to himself and lying to Jesus and he had actually broken the law from his youth? Okay. Jesus doesn't point that out to him, though. Jesus just takes him a step further as if saying, okay, good. It's kind of like when I go to my doctor and I say, I'm having this pain right here. And I know the doctor's looking at me and thinking, yeah, what have you been eating, man? And I'll say, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with my eating. What have you been exercising? It has nothing to do with my exercising. This is what Jesus is doing here. He, he says, keep these laws. He says, I've kept these from my youth. He says, fine. What does he say, Mr. Preston? All right, fine. Go sell all you have and come and follow me. And this guy, is that what he does? He sells his stuff joyfully and goes and follows Jesus? What does he do? What's that? He left brokenhearted. Now, is he brokenhearted because he can't have eternal life? No. He's brokenhearted because even though he's amassed some stuff in life, he realizes he's not happy with what he has, but he's not disappointed with it enough to part from it. And here's this one that maybe he believes the Messiah, maybe he doesn't, and has put this impossible standard before him. Well, I can't live without this stuff. This is, this is a picture of the modern church. This is a picture of where we find ourselves. Well, I'm awfully religious. I looked apart. Some of you are to a time of life where you've done this right here for a really, really long time. It's sort of hard to change things when you've done it a certain way for a long time, isn't it? In fact, it kind of gets to the whole... Why would we do it differently? 
I've always done it this way. It seemed to work for the people before us. Why do we need to change? Now, with that mentality in the American church, go back to the people in Jesus's story here. The nation of Israel is refusing the Messiah. And that's their exact logic. Why do we need to change? We are right by Moses. We were born from Abraham. We've been doing this this way for a very long time. And now here comes this guy and he's saying to us, we should change this. Why should we change this? Well, there's one big blaring reason that you and I could see because the Lord has blessed us to be able to have the whole word of God in our hands. The one big blaring reason is that Jesus, the son of God says, you should do different than this. Now let's skip ahead in the story and then we'll get back to the story. Is that what these people conclude? That we need to change? No. What do they conclude? Kill him. That's what they concluded. Now often we we kind of self-righteously exempt ourselves from such thinking. We'd say, oh, we'd never say kill Jesus. They were no different than you. They said, we'd never say kill the Messiah. But this is not the Messiah. How do you know? Because he doesn't meet the standards that I've set for him. Is that what we're to base it off of? No. He had to meet the standards that God had set for him. How do we find that out? In the word. So this is a coveted invitation. They expected to be a part of it. But Jesus is right here with them and they're rejecting it. Let's read on. So verse 16, a certain man bade a great supper and bade many. And sit a supper at supper time and said to them that were bidden, come for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. Now keep everything we just talked about in your head as we go through this. Because you're going to see how salt in the wound, what Jesus is saying is to them in this regard. This would not have been, this would not have been heard easy to their ears, Right? Verse 18, this is Jesus speaking to the mass. Verse 15, remember, a guy and some other people who think they deserve the kingdom, they will no doubt be a part of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying to them, when the man who set up the kingdom finally showed up, they begin to make excuses on why they can't come. Verse 18, the first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go see it. I pray thee have me excused. And another says, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another says, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. (laughs) So once things are ready, those invited begin to excuse themselves from attending. Well, hang on a minute. Why would you excuse yourselves from attending something that you coveted getting the invitation to attend? And then look how flimsy their invitations are or their excuses for refusing the invitation is. Some say, well, I bought a field and I've got to go see it. The other says, I bought five yoke of oxen and I've got to go prove them. Now, we've well established that chance is not a farmer or a rancher. But some of you know more about these things. Anybody here have ever bought oxen? All right, nobody. Anybody here has ever bought a field? Nobody. 
So I'm not the only one. All right, I feel better about myself as a person now. Let's pray and go home. (laughs) But let's just think this thing through. You're going to buy five yoke of oxen. This would be like in our day. You're going to buy a new tractor to till your land with so you can grow food. You're going to do this sight unseen. Why not? What's the old saying? Never look a gift horse in the wine. You judge that horse by its teeth somehow or another. I don't know. You horse people can figure that one out for me. But the point of the saying is somebody's going to give it to you. Just take it. Don't nitpick about it. But if you were going to buy this horse, my assumption from the saying is you would look that horse in the mouth. Why is the horse teeth important? Somebody going to tell me that one? What's that? Their age and their health. All right, don't look me in the mouth. You're not going to buy a piece of land that you haven't seen. You're not going to buy oxen that you haven't proved. So why would your excuse be, I bought these things and now I've got to go see about them here? Well, all right, let's say you did do this. You did buy some oxen and you didn't prove them. Well, you've already bought them. They're yours, right? Why are you in a hurry to get to them? Is the deal, oh, you can buy them, but once you get here, if you change your mind and you don't like them, we're going to let you have them? No, because if I'm selling you some land that I think once you get there and look at it, you're not going to like, it comes as a final sale. There's no return policy. So then the urgency goes away. So couldn't you just go on to the feast and then go see the land or the oxen later? And then this last one is funny to me. I have married a wife. Now, men, can I get a witness here? Sometimes that is a legit excuse, is it not? Are y'all just leaving me hanging? All right, two of you are being honest. Men, isn't it a legitimate excuse at times that I have married a wife so I can't? All right, I guess, all right, me and Preston, and your wife's not here, so of course you're saying that. No, she came back. I almost had to say that today at church. I married a wife. I can't come preach to you people this morning. But she's getting me out of that hole. I, I tell you, I've never met, though, a female who heard about there being a big party thrown who didn't want to go. Maybe this lady exists. But here's what I know about parties. You're going to see people. You're going to talk to people. You're going to dress up for this thing. There's going to be decorations. You can either talk about how nice the decorations are. You can talk about how tacky the decorations are. Nevertheless, you're going to get to see the decorations and talk about the decorations. There's going to be food. Now, men, we love food and we like to eat food. And ladies, you kind of come across like, oh, we are skinny and thin and we don't like to eat food. But I grew up with a teenage sister. She was five years older than me. And I'm not going to tell you the rest of what's going through my mind, but I know this is not always the truth. She would come in from her dates with her boyfriend and she had eating in a real dainty kind of a way, and then she'd come home, and, you know, then the rest happened. So I know, ladies, you like food at these things as much as we do, maybe even more so. Because did you have to cook it? No. Did you have to wash the dishes afterward? No. It's a good deal. So this guy's excuse, I have married a wife, and so I can't come to this feast, that's a pretty flimsy excuse. I was reading... Phil Riken's commentary on Luke here, and he tells a funny story about being in sixth grade. And they were teaching them this parable, and they taught them this parable through a little song. 
Now, I don't know the tune. If you know this little song and you know the tune, I would like to learn it. But let me give you the lyrics. I cannot come to the banquet. Don't trouble me now. I have married a wife. I have bought me a cow. My friends are my fields and dominions that cost a tidy sum. Or I have fields and dominions that cost a tidy sum. Don't trouble me now. I cannot come. It's it's the parable. I can't come to the banquet. Don't trouble me now. I've married a wife. I've bought a cow. I have fields and dominions that cost a tidy sum. Don't trouble me now. I cannot come. Anybody that's a familiar song you learned in sixth grade? Can you sing it for us? Can you rap it for us? <laughs> All right, so this is a song, right? So Riken says in his commentary that he and the other sixth grade boys flipped around some of the lyrics, kind of like you did there, and they would sing to the fear of their sixth grade teacher, I have bought me a wife, I have married a cow. No, not going to laugh on that one. I thought that was pretty good. But what's his main point in this little song? Why did Daryl have to learn this little song? Well, to learn this parable is to learn that these people simply did not want to attend. Do you ever want to refuse an invitation that way? Hey, here's what's going on. We'd like you to come. Do you ever just want to be able to say, I don't want to. Thanks anyways. Don't you think life would be simpler if we could do that sometimes? But you can't. And so you either go or you figure out a way to excuse yourself and you don't go. Nevertheless, hopefully, given the first part of the sermon, we're cultivating these relationships and we don't have to give these excuses. And then we're being generous to people who need us to be generous to them in this regard. But, but there's a good point here being made. These people did not want to attend. Why? They had gotten busy with life. They had better things to do. Now, I think this is a good time for us to pause and just think about the invitation. In our day, in our, in our time, God has given you a gracious invitation. Are you willing to be saved? He wants you to come. Everything is ready for you in Christ. But you need to do something more than just talk about how nice it would be to go to heaven. You need to respond to God in faith. To be saved is to say yes to God's gracious invitation in Jesus Christ. So that leads us at this scenario of, am I going to accept his invitation or am I going to refuse him? And if I'm going to refuse him, maybe I'm just going to make excuses like these in the text. Really what we're saying is, I hear the gospel. I need a savior, but I'm busy with life and I have better things to do. At the time of Jesus teaching this, that's what Israel is actively doing. And and, and I need you to hear, because we're a religious crowd, that they weren't off worshiping Satan and said, we have better things to do. They were being very religious and doing what they thought was true biblical worship to God. And they were calling that their better things to do. While they actively rejected the Messiah. They liked the idea of being God's people. They liked the idea of being a part of his future kingdom. But when the time came for them to actually embrace this, they said, oh, I like my current estate better than what you're telling me I need. They preferred not to change. We still do this today. 
We are fine being religious and being religiously involved, but we like to sort of keep it on the range. We want a version of the gospel so long as it doesn't require us to change all that much. Well, I would tell you this morning that the gospel requires your willingness to be changed completely. You will be transformed. You will live counter to the culture around you. You will go from master to slave with Jesus as your Lord. It will cost you everything. But it comes to you as a free gift. Sadly, that's not the gospel that many people are convinced toward. The gospel that most people are convinced toward is simply, you can just keep on living just like you're living. Keep the same friends. Keep the same ways. Just add a profession of faith and a baptism to it and you'll go to heaven. It's not the case. For children, this comes a little bit easier because you're raised in godly homes and there doesn't require this huge transformation, though there is still this transformation. You went from being in your sin nature because of Adam to being a, having righteousness applied to your account because of Christ. And so that certainly is a transformation. But for some of you who are saved as teenagers, young adults, or maybe full-blown adults, you can say fully, this was a complete transformation of my life. Some of you will testify to the fact that people who were your friends, blood brothers, tight friends, once Jesus became your friend, that drove a wedge between you and them. Some of you will say it caused you to make a job change. It caused you to make a life change as far as where I'm going to live, how I'm going to live, who I'm going to live around. And I point all that out to say to you this morning, if you find yourself here thinking, well, I think I'm a Christian. I'm trying really hard to be a Christian, but I don't know that I've ever gone through the transformation that you're talking about here. Well, I would encourage you to start over. Repent, be baptized, and say, Lord, whatever change needs to happen in my life for me to be right with you, then change me completely. Peter's a good ex example of this for us. He was following Christ. He didn't yet have the Holy Spirit. So he's kind of in this funny balance between obeying Christ, but doing it only with his human nature through the life of Christ. And there are multiple times where Peter just did whatever he thought was best, and Jesus would have to rebuke him for it. One of my favorites is when Jesus is having the last supper with his disciples and Jesus puts on the servant's robe and gets the water pot to wash the feet. And Peter says, no, you're the master. We'll wash your feet. And Jesus rebukes him and saying, Peter, if you don't let me do this, you can have no part in me. There we see transformation. Peter changes his mind on what should happen in that moment. And he says, fine, but don't just wash my feet. Wash every single bit of me. See, too many of us, the, the church, for a lot of different reasons, has said, we'll take you, you're okay. And by the way, we will take you. But we're not going to tell you you're okay. No, our job is to tell you why you're not okay. Isn't that what you expect from your doctor? Isn't that what you expect from the trainer with your gym membership? Isn't that what you expected even from your kindergarten teacher? I remember, little bitty dude. I had a sister five years older than me. She liked to do, she played school. That's what we played all the time. Kids, do y'all still play school? 
Some of you are the teachers. That's a thing still. Are I hated that game. And one of the reasons I hated it so bad is because my sister got to be a teacher and I didn't know how to read. So I was glad of the day my mom said, you're going to start kindergarten and they're going to teach you how to read. Man, I got a little chance all spiffed up there and took him off to school. And I sat down at my desk and guess what I wanted that teacher to do? Teach me to read. I didn't want to go to recess. I wanted to go and learn how to read. Now, I did reach a time in school where I felt like I had learned enough. Like that kid who went to school the first day of school and came back and mom said, how did it go? And said, went fine. I'm not going back tomorrow. Why? I've done it. I've I've had enough. (laughs) I don't need any more schooling. For some reason, we've adopted a different mentality around our church. Maybe not our church, but the church. Hopefully not around our church. I don't want the doctor to tell me that I need a life change. I don't want the teacher to actually teach me anything. I don't want the trainer to actually make me work. I just want somebody to tell me I'm fine just like I am. Lots of Christian literature and Christian music wrapped up in that kind of idea. But if you really get into your Bible, you know what it'll regularly be telling you? It'll be telling you you're fine just like Christ is. And just in yourself, you're going to hell. But if you'll embrace a relationship with Jesus Christ, ditch your own self-righteousness and let his righteousness be applied to your account, you'll be just fine. But it's going to require some transformation because we're not to be conformed to this world. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Well, what does the man in the parable do? Verse 21. Because you can't leave this story hanging. He threw a feast and everybody made excuses. Well, the servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house being angry said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor, the maimed, the halt, the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. So he has his servant go out and invite the poor and the disabled into his feast. All of those who coveted the invitation, when the time came to attend the feast, they begin to make excuses on why they can't come because they're they're so busy with life. And so this man says, you know what? We're going to go invite those who we otherwise would not have invited. And then when that's not enough, he compels his servant. Why don't you just go invite some total strangers to come and eat? And then in verse 24, he gives what we will call the damning statement. None of those who were actually invited will eat at this grand banquet. Okay, now you need to understand the doctrinal implications of what Jesus is saying here. The Jews would typically refuse some because they were deemed unclean. This would be the poor and the disabled. So here Jesus is saying, God has made a kingdom. He sent invitations to this kingdom because you all consider yourself covenant people. When the kingdom finally came to you, you made up flimsy excuses on why you couldn't change your life to be a part of this kingdom. And because you've rejected Jesus, now the kingdom is going to be invited to everybody but you. So this is the cutting off 
of Israel. This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. It's why we would work hard to evangelize Jews. Because otherwise they're under the Abrahamic covenant and they're going to heaven. And you and I as Gentiles just need to get in Christ and get this. This is not the case anymore. They refused the Messiah. They are cut off from the kingdom lest they come just the same as you and me. Now, how do you and I get involved here? Well, the Jews would refuse the poor, the disabled. They would also refuse even more strangers. Well, who's a stranger to a Jew? A Gentile, a Gentile dog. And so Jesus is convictingly saying to these Pharisaical Jews that have fallen into the trap of their own legalism in this dinner setting, as one of them has said presumptuously, Blessed is everyone who eats in the kingdom, right, Jesus? And Jesus says, no, actually not. Because those of you who act like this are going to be cut off. And then this poor diseased guy that you brought in here just to trick me, he can come to the kingdom. And those that you won't allow to come worship because you say they're, well, they're just difficult. We don't like being around them. They can come to the kingdom. And those Gentiles that you consider dogs because they're strangers to you, well, now they can come to the kingdom. So in fact, I'm going to send my representatives out and they're going to beat the bushes of the world and they're going to compel them, the meaning drag them. They're going to drag them into the kingdom. We invited you. You refused the invitation. Others are going to be dragged now and they're going to be part of this kingdom and you will not taste of this feast. you imagine how hard that must have been to hear? No wonder they wanted to put him on a cross. We've got to shut this guy up. He can't be talking like that. Now I want us to be careful with the doctrinal implications of a parable. We don't use parables to form our doctrine. We use parables to illustrate doctrine that we already know. So it would be a fallacy to take this story and say, oh, then the Jews are cut off. No, what we would take this parable to to mean and to understand is self-righteous people who refuse to embrace Jesus by faith are cut off. That's what we should come to know here. I, I would close by saying that at this point in this dinner, Anybody who's not already offended by Christ, it surely is. Now, I mean, here they are. They're, they're, they're all in offended. That brings us back to where we started. Counterculture. Counterculture is the calling of disciples of Christ. It's not the life of receiving the coveted invitation or sitting in the best seats. Rather, it's the life of avoiding the traps of legalism, avoiding the temptations of ambition. It's the life of generous hospitality and invitations. For sure, among ourselves, but in a generous manner, it would be among those considered unclean and unworthy, even just strangers out in the highways and the hedges. Church, let us strive. To avoid living as those here we find rejected. And instead, let us live a life of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Not self-righteous, but embracing the righteousness 
of Christ alone. Not consumed with the idolatry of the temporal and instead living our lives for that which is eternal. We are invited by God to live life at his great banquet. Often we consider the Christian life a funeral. You know, we have to die to ourselves daily. But what we learn here in the scriptures is that the Christian life is not a funeral. The Christian life is a feast. Since we've died to ourselves, we can now feast in God and with God. The work of salvation is complete. And we've been invited to partake and to share in this great work. We are allowed to share with family, with friends, with the poor, with the disabled, with the unclean, with the unworthy, even with strangers. The only ones excluded are those who would refuse this invitation. Notice what he says there. Yet there is room. Verse 22. Lord, it is done as you commanded, and yet there is room. This is a great banquet. This is a wonderful feast. And there is plenty of room. Let's live this counterculture life of a disciple and thrive in this life. Let's be different because we are blessed. And because we are used. And because we have favor from our God as we live this life. There's two ways to respond this morning. The first is to say, I'm a, I'm a true Christian. I know I'm in a relationship with Jesus. There's no doubt in my mind that I'm going to heaven when I die. God, help me to live the life of a disciple of Christ. Not the life of a disciple of this world. The other thing to do this morning is to say, I, I find myself religious I try, find myself trying my best to be a good Christian. But I'd have to admit to myself here this morning, I'm just not sure about my eternal state. So I'm going to just let go of everything from my path, past and, and start today accepting this invitation. I'm going to give up my religiousness. I'm going to give up past things, rituals that I think I've done. And I'm just going to say, you know what? I want to be sure that I'm in a relationship with Christ, that heaven is my eternal home, so that I can live the life of a disciple in this life now. Lord, transform my life. I'm yours. Take me and have me. Would you bow with me and respond to God in one of those two ways? Father, we thank you for a convicting passage. Help us to all examine ourselves this morning and decide, am I truly saved or am I just religious? Am I living a transforming life or am I just trying to be a good person? And so, Lord, for those with doubts this morning, I pray that you and the power of your Holy Spirit would do a work on them. They would know they're in a relationship with you. And then, Lord, for those who are saying, Oh, I, I know, I know the Lord. I know I'm going to heaven when I die. There's no doubt in my mind. Then Lord, help us to examine, am I truly living the life of a disciple or would my life look more like these Pharisees here? We ask your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name.